This episode, you meet the incomparable Dr. Colonel Pete Mapes, or is it Colonel Doctor? I'm not sure. Creator of a famous fife and drum trio as a cadet, a longtime pilot, Air Force flight surgeon who won many uh, awards, a couple of them first time ever at the same time. He'll he'll talk about that. Uh, He also always did his best to protect his air crews and do the right thing. That is the persistent nature of Pete, and that's what he focuses in on in this discussion. Uh, today, he's the leader of Aviation Scouts in Michigan. Uh, there's a lot of acronyms in this one, uh, but that's our Pete. Dr. Pete Mapes, thanks for joining the call this week. Happy to first, do it, John. The, fir- the first question I like to ask everybody is, what, what message do you have for the uh, the incoming class, the current cadets, the uh, recent grads, and then any of the old folks that uh, might be listening in? On a daily basis, uh, each one of you will be confronted with choices to make. And sometimes the easy choice that most people make is just to go with the flow and not create a stir. But that is not always the right choice. It's important that when you're confronted with a dilemma that you do the right thing regardless of what those consequences may be. If you always try and do the right thing, things will work out. But when you uh, pass the decisions off to other people or um, ignore a problem, it doesn't go away. It just gets worse. And part of our job as leaders is to take leadership and ownership of the problems that we confront and deal with them in a professional manner and not leave them for other people to be saddled with. And that happens every day as in the cadet life and every day in the real world. And uh, part of cleaning up our own messes is uh, taking responsibility for uh, the stuff that we're responsible for. So, you know, I would task everyone listening to this to always try and do the right thing and not to avoid conflict, but to, Get the make sure the right thing gets done, even if it takes a lot of energy to do it. So, so this this is a perfect segue into my first uh, real question: How did you come up with the fife and drum thing? <laughs> oh gosh, that was easy. So, <laughs> I grew up in Maryland, and in Maryland there are a bunch of Revolutionary War reenacting units. There's the First uh, Maryland Regiment. Uh, there, there are a number of others and they're still there to this day and they still go out and they reenact at Yorktown and, you know, in Virginia and all kinds of other places. So I was aware that there were these people going around reenacting. And since we had the class of 76 and we had kind of adopted the moniker of the struggle for American independence, uh, it seemed like a natural thing to take the uh, classic symbol of the fife for the drummer and the person holding the flag um, and uh, put it on the field as a symbol of our class. Uh, it was a lot of work. We had to sew our own uniforms. We got patterns from the Smithsonian Institution. We borrowed an original uh, Revolutionary War button mold and poured buttons out of lead and sewed them on the uniforms, which made them you know, unable to be washed. They had to be dry cleaned carefully because you damage the lead buttons if you put them in a washing machine. And uh, so, uh, and then we found talented people like Mike Byron on the drums and uh, Steve Boyd on the fife. And, you know, we had some backups, a backup drummer and a backup fifer. We had five uniforms all in all. And uh, all of them were, were cut to the uh, specifications uh from the patterns in the Smithsonian and now, uh, Mike Byron's Mike, Mike sewed his uniform. Uh, uh, Steve Boyd's mother sewed his. Um, I sewed my own. So, yeah. <laughs> now Mike tells me you guys got a lot of mileage out of that. Well, we got, I wouldn't say we got a lot of mileage. Our original intent was to remain below the below the waves kind of subterranean and yeah. to magically show up at cadet wing functions you know kind of in the middle you know be hiding in the shadows then jump into the uh, order of the parade and then instead of stopping with the wing just march on by 
and keep <laughs> on going into the shadows again. But unfortunately, someone ratted us out to the commandant. So yeah. uh, I, I came home one afternoon to find a little yellow note taped to my door saying, uh, report to the commandant's office at 5.30 today. <laughs> and so, so I did. And uh, that was when I found out that we had been made a representational uh, activity for the academy, just like the Drum and Bugle Corps. And the really funny thing was that when we graduated, the academy wasn't done with it. And uh, so the academy said, well, we'll just keep your uniform uh, or we'll buy it. We'll reimburse you. And I go, there's no way you can reimburse me for 300 hours worth of labor, you know, <laughs> yeah. and 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 my uniform is not for sale. You have a fabric shop. You have a cadet uniform store. You have talented people who can sew. Here's the pattern. Make your own uniform. And that's yeah. what they did. That's what they did. And then, uh, you know, I gave them the patterns from the Smithsonian and, uh, you know, they'd been used once, but they could be used again. And um, so they and then they put enlisted guys in them, you know, for the next year, which was like, hey, it's supposed to be cadet activity. And you just put enlisted guys in it. It's like, what was that about? Yeah. And uh, so uh, <clears throat> the one the, I guess the highlight was ending up on the cover of the 1976-77 uh, Academy catalog. Yeah. Um, the year after we graduated, we were we were featured on the catalog and they couldn't put the guys who replaced us on because they weren't cadets. You know, That's so right. the Continental Color Guard went out in a blaze of glory as we graduated. And uh, if we'd have been smart about it, we would have tried to recruit some people from the class of 77 to uh, follow us. But we didn't think that far ahead. And so the commandant kind of appointed people and, you know, went downhill from there. <laughs> well, I I want everybody to understand that this was a really cool thing from uh, originated by Pete Mapes of 36 Squadron Pink Panther fame that uh, got a lot of attention, at least at the Academy. And they got out of a lot of uh, uh, parades, marches and stuff because they got to do this little fife and drum thing. It was- So we didn't, jealous. just to be clear, John, that's not correct. We didn't get out of anything. We, we just got- We, we, we got re signed up like we did. <laughs> we got repositioned. Yes, there you go, there you go. You had a lot more we fun did. than we did, I guess is the way to put that. Well, I think we had a lot more heat on us. You guys got to stay in the squadron. We got to, we had to be out there in front of God and everybody. <laughs> I, I was very proud of you. That was a really cool, uh, uh, one of the more unique things that the squadron pulled off. And I, and I, and I, I attribute the demeanor and the attitude of the, the pink pants that to help, uh, help you get creative and do that. That was really neat. Yeah. Well, I've never had any problem being creative. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that leads me to the next thing is, you know, so you said you grew up in Maryland. Now, why, why Air Force? What, what got you to pick, pick that place? So that was actually very interesting. My dad was a Naval Academy uh, uh, graduate. He graduated from Annapolis during World War II. He uh, went to gunnery school up in Connecticut. Matter of fact, I have his desk still because they changed furniture while he was there. So I have a gunnery school desk that probably dates back to uh, just prior to the Civil War that finally got changed uh, during World War II. And, um, um, and then he was assigned to the USS Alabama in the Pacific. And Jeez. so he did went through part of World War II on the Alabama, and he was actually in uh, Tokyo Bay. He was the second battleship into Tokyo Bay behind the Missouri. And uh, right after the surrender, uh, he was taken off the battleship and sent to a uh, Japanese city with 21 enlisted people to uh, do, uh, um, uh, you know, crowd control, police work, uh, you know, uh, aid to survivors, whatever. And uh, that assignment, as six weeks assignment, I think is what killed him. Because uh, <clears throat> he was assigned to Nagasaki, and so he spent six weeks in Nagasaki, less than starting less than a month after the atomic bomb blew up there, and uh, he died after I was born, uh, while I was in med school actually, uh, of acute lymphocytic leukemia, which is a childhood cancer that's not seen in adults unless they've been irradiated. Mm. So uh, <laughs> he paid for. 
he paid for his military service uh, by never getting to see his grandchildren. Um, but uh, when I was nine, he took his private pilot certificate. And in September, about two months before I turned 10, without telling my mother what he was doing, just a, a gorgeous East Coast September day, CAVU visibility, uh, no smog, um, you know, just you could see for 100 miles. He took me down to a little field uh, south of uh, Washington, D.C. called uh, Rose Valley. Now it's called Potomac Airfield and uh, rented a 1962 Cessna 150, which was almost brand new, and took me for a ride. And I fell in love with the sky. I love being able to move in three dimensions. Uh, I love the way the airplane handled. We flew for over an hour. We flew up, or you know, all across Washington D.C. It was before the restricted airspace. Yeah. And uh, so we were at 5,000 feet over our house in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, looking down on my mom who was hanging up laundry in the backyard, and she had no idea that we were there. Um, <laughs> And we were a mile above her almost. And then he took me back. <clears throat> Excuse me. I actually got airsick on that ride and uh, would get airsick many other times. But I loved it. I he I basically let me fly the entire thing. And then he landed and he took my five year old brother up. My five year old brother was nearly not nearly as enamored as I was with the sky. He got sick, too, but he missed the bag. So after he landed. We spent two and a half hours getting vomit out of everywhere. And the people who had the plane after us were extremely miffed because uh, uh, the plane wasn't available on time. Um, anyway, I knew from that day on that I wanted to be a pilot. Cool. And no, no questions. Hands down, that was what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, when I was 13, I started volunteering with the American Red Cross as a first aider got trained uh, up in Montgomery County with a organization called the Montgomery County First Aid Unit. The uh, Red Cross has now let that organization go. They no longer sponsor it, but it's become a, a Boy Scout Explorer Post uh, sponsored by the uh, uh, Wheaton Rescue Squad. Uh, so it's Explorer Post 742. And um, got trained in first aid. Um, the riots occurred in April of 68. Uh, I went downtown as a trained first aider for three days. I got out of high school. Uh, we got to set up a first aid station. And uh, because D.C. fire and D.C. Pol police were just overwhelmed. So we got to, you know, treat firefighters and policemen and civilians who got hurt in the riots. And I decided at that point that a little bit of training was a really, really good thing and decided that I wanted to go to medical school. Hmm. So now I had two lifetime goals. Goal A, be a pilot. Goal B, be a physician. And uh, when I was 15, uh, about a year and a half after the riots, um, a friend of my father's named Colonel Ryan, uh, who's an Air Force colonel, came to visit us. He stayed with us for uh, three or four days while he was in charm school en route to his last active duty assignment. He's going to command the F-4 wing at uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Cool. And uh, so I spent a lot of time. Colonel Ryan was a Native American who grew up on the reservation. Uh, he grew up during World War II. Um, initially, you know, he didn't have any college, but he's an Eagle Scout. And uh, so as people, they got more and more desperate for, uh, for people to fight the war, they lowered the requirements to get into the air cadets uh, for pilot and navigator training from two years of college uh, to they would waive the two years of college if you held the Eagle Scout Award. So Colonel Ryan signed up and uh, he ended up flying uh, P-38s in uh, Mediterranean, mm. um, uh, long range escort. And he was shot down over Italy on his 74th mission. Uh, as a Native American, he looks Italian. Now, he doesn't speak any Italian, but he looks Italian. Right. So um, uh, he actually hid in plain view. Um, he broke his arm in his parachute landing fall, uh, but he hid in plain view as a, uh, a deaf and dumb um, maintenance guy 
in the local Gestapo headquarters. <laughs> really? For, for three months. He pretended that he could not speak and he could not hear, which made him perfect for the Gestapo because, you know, he couldn't yeah. tell anyone what he saw and he couldn't hear what anyone was talking about, except that he heard everything and he spoke some German and uh, he uh, he saw everything. And when he escaped after his arm had healed and uh, and everything, he, he got set up in this job by the local partisans, by the way. A lot of people are in Italy were not very happy with Mussolini. Um, right. And uh, so he escaped three months after working Gestapo headquarters for three months with a lot of very important files that ended up being uh, uh, evidence in Nuremberg. Wow. So uh, he uh, then went to um, fly in the Korean War. Uh, this time he was flying P-51s. And once again, on his 74th mission, he got shot down. This time he landed off the coast. And uh, he spent a night in his raft. And at one point, a North uh, Korean patrol boat came out and got pretty close to him, I guess. And um, somehow he got out of his raft and got in the water and they didn't find him. Um, and then he ended up his third. He also flew, of course, in Vietnam and uh, distinguished himself there. And that's how he got the job in 1970 uh, uh, in the Philippines as a wing commander. So and so he I he didn't do anything more than 75 missions, it sounds like, in any theater, right? <laughs> well, I think he did more in Vietnam. Okay. But he did 74 in World War II in the Med and 74. He may have flown more than 74 in Korea because he wasn't ever captured there. Okay. You know, he, he was re, he was picked up by the Navy the next day. Um, and but he did fly in all all three wars. Um, wow. And um so when I told him that I wanted to be a pilot and a doctor, he looked at me kind of funny and he said, well, there's this small boys school out in Colorado that I really think you should apply to because <laughs> the Air Force has this program called the Pilot Physician Program where they use a few pilots who are trained doctors to sort out human factors and difficult physiological problems. And, uh, I, I was sold as soon as he started explaining the pilot physician program to me. That's cool. Um, so uh, at the age of 15, I knew I wanted to apply to the academy. And by the time I turned 16, that was uh, 16 was November of my junior year. Um, I was applying to the Air Force Academy. I graduated high school when I was 17, turned 17 in November of my senior year, and um, uh, then went straight to the academy at you know, July 2nd, I think we reported. Um, and uh, yeah, the academy was hard because, um, well, for instance, during basic cadet training, uh, there was a, a football player who was a second classman who was tasked with teaching a CPR. Now, remember, I'm a trained Red Cross first aider. And the last thing that I did with the Red Cross before I came to the Air Force Academy was I got certified to be a first aid and CPR instructor. And this is back in the very first days of CPR, okay, 1970, 69. So I went to the academy in 72, and CPR had only been around for three years. Yeah. You know, for lay people. So uh, I think his name was Cadet Renfro. Um, he was a big, burly football player, class of uh, uh, 74. Okay. And he was teaching us CPR, except he was teaching pressure – on, at the bottom of the rib cage on the xiphoid process, and that will drive the xiphoid into the liver and kill someone. So, so I took him aside, you know, on break, and I said, Cadet Renfro, sir, may I make a statement? Yeah, sure, Mapes, what do you want to know? Um, he said, well, actually, sir, I, I just wanted to let you know that we need to put pressure a little higher up over the middle of the sternum when we're doing chest compressions so we don't lacerate the liver. Boy, he lit into me, and I spent the next eighteen months on aptitude probation. I was going to say you probably you probably opened a can of worms. Oh yeah, like, I was on aptitude probation. All the all the firsties and uh, class of seventy four members uh, uh, had my uh, had me in their sights after that, and I had to go to counseling and uh, 
you know, are you sure you want to be here? They couldn't throw me out on anything because I followed all the rules and did everything I was supposed to. I just, when someone said something wrong, I wasn't willing to shut up about it. You know, I bring it back to everyone's attention. And it's, it's not like I made, it's not like I made this stuff up. I mean, I was trained, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I had a miserable 18 months and finally, uh, after, um, we, you know, we changed squadrons at the end of dual year back then. So I went to 36 as a three degree and, uh, halfway through the three degree year, I finally got off aptitude probation. And by the time I was a first year, I was on group staff as the group logistics officer and, you know, in the top 10% of the military order merit, but those first 18 months were hard. <laughs> so now, um, did, you, did you ever think of quitting? No, no. I, I had always said that if I would go to the air force Academy the only way I'm leaving is if they throw me out. Okay. So there was no way I was going to quit. I mean, I had a, I had an OAO that I ended up getting married to right after graduation. And then, uh, you know, she ended up having other desires and we got divorced four years later. And uh, so, uh, you know, but that was just what she wanted to do, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but I got married again. My wife and I had three, have three kids and, it's been 39 years, so I guess it's a thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, you found you had the starter one, then you got the real one. Yeah, well, whatever. But uh, the, the real one asked me to marry her. So uh, okay. uh, I guess I guess she she was serious about that, you know? And yeah, I got uh, to ask you what you thought of uh, the quarantine we had to deal with. The quarantine? Do you remember the uh, food poisoning we got at Alvarez's party? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really stupid. It was like, really? You know, you can't have enough sanitation to keep people well? I mean, I was just, you know, there's no excuse for food poisoning. That just it reflects an inability to properly handle food. It doesn't occur by accident. It occurs by neglect. So, yeah. And I, and I, I, I should let everybody know this is a... Uh... This was a weekend when we got invited to, I can't remember what this occasion was, but our AOC served a bunch of uh, food at his house and everybody got sick. And so the whole squadron got the trots and the vomits and we got quarantined for a whole, for a whole week, it seemed like. And it was pretty ugly in the, in the latrines and in the squadron spaces because we couldn't, nobody, nobody could control themselves. It was, it was uh, one of those rare pink panther things where we had to do it as a group. Yeah, so and that would that was actually good training because when we deployed to Desert Storm to jet anew with the B fifty twos during uh, during Desert Storm from Oscoda back in ninety ninety one, uh, our wing commander uh, Kenneth Boykin insisted that we buy eggs on the uh, public market uh -huh. in uh, in Jeddah, and as the flight doc at the time, uh, the other flight docs and I all counseled him that we should be eating powdered eggs and not buying anything on the market because the sanitary standards were not up to par. Yeah, as a result, right. <clears throat> as a result, the wing got sick and we were flying combat missions with crew members on IVs in the airplane, in diapers, in their flight suits. Oh, geez. And yeah, that, I mean, that sounds right. <laughs> that sounds it was, it was terrible. And it was all because we bought the eggs you know, in Saudi Arabia, instead of using powdered eggs, it was salmonella. And, um, and so, I mean, he just would not listen. He insisted that we had to buy the local eggs. And he literally, I mean, no one in the wing was fit to fly. They were all Deneff and we flew them anyway, because it was combat. Yeah. So yeah, combat has a different layer of uh, or level of uh, acceptance for people. Yeah, but but that was we did that to ourselves. That was uh, I mean I I told people I said when you go to the to the cafeteria, do not eat anything with eggs in it. Don't yeah. eat the cake. Don't eat the scrambled eggs. Don't eat anything with eggs in it. But they couldn't help infecting everything. I mean it was terrible. Yeah. So. Uh, so Alvarez's party was not the last time I would see uh, mass dysentery. Um, you know, in the you're getting trained. You're, that, that's part of the indoctrination, getting ready. Exactly. For the yeah. Exactly. 
So, were, um, were there any other uh, wild uh, stories you, you remember from being a, an upperclassman? Um, well, you know, there seemed to be a proclivity in our squadron for other cadets, not me, to want to go wandering across the trotso at odd hours of the night in uh, various states of uh, lack of clothing. Um, I did not personally participate in that because I was too tired from studying. And I know a lot of the other uh, upperclassmen uh, and members of our class would uh, spend a lot of time away from the academy on weekends. But my typical weekend was uh, study Saturday, go to church Sunday morning, uh, and then uh, maybe take Sunday afternoon off. I thought I could afford it away from my studies, but I overloaded the last five semesters with an extra course and graduated with 203 semester hours uh, uh, on my diploma. And uh, so mainly I was there for the academics, which has served me extremely well. The quality of the academics of the Air Force Academy was magnificent. And it's it enabled me to do all kinds of things with my life that I wouldn't have been able to do if I'd gone to University of Maryland or something like that. Did you, uh, th so what did you do in your summers? At the Academy? Um, well, of course, uh, Siri and then Operation Third Lieutenant for uh, uh, third class summer. And then uh, uh, second class summer, I went to Airborne and uh, went to a C-5 squadron at Altus uh, Air Force Base, Oklahoma, flew C-5s and C-141s all over the Pacific for uh, three weeks. <clears throat> then uh, senior year, I did uh, uh, First Beast, and I think, I don't remember what my second thing was senior year. It may have been an academic thing, uh, independent study with the biology department or something, but I did okay. First Beast. So um, I'm not sure what the second thing was senior year. Okay. I, was doing a lot, I was doing a lot of stuff for the electron microscope then. And uh, um, so uh, it, it's likely that during that second portion of the summer, the second three-week period, I was in the biology department doing research because I knew I needed some research and some publications to get into med school. So now I know that the, the, crew's gonna, the group's going to want to know, when you graduated, did you go to pilot training or did you go to yes. school? Yeah, pilot training was always part of the plan because um, to get into the pilot physician program, you had to be a pilot before you were a doctor. So that was the first step was pilot. Correct. Correct. Where, so where I went to uh, UPT. Uh, Craig, uh, 7707 was the class. He sent me an email about the Peter B. Mapes trophy from Craig Air Force Base. And uh, <laughs> so... Uh, so there's actually a story behind that, because when I was at Craig, I would have been first in my class to solo, except I was uh, going to the wood shop after hours, and I cut the end of my middle finger off on my left hand on the dado blade. And uh, so uh, I spent six weeks sitting in my chair grounded, missing part of my finger uh, in a bandage, and it was the middle finger. So, you know, I'm sitting there with that thing, the middle finger being held up above my head the whole time with my elbow on the table, you know, <laughs> flipping to giving everyone the bird, not intentionally, but just because that's the way it is. And uh, as a result of that, uh, they made this little Peter B. Mapes trophy. Which 7801 was the last class out at Craig, I guess. Yeah. Um, and someone that he knew in 7801 got awarded that trophy. And I don't know what the story was, but he sent me a picture of the trophy. I actually have it in my email. I can send it to you if you want. Yeah, I've seen yeah. it all. Anyway. Oh, well, it was it was a lively time at the Air Force Academy. No question. I was uh, I, I was just perfectly happy to avoid most of those frolics and spend the time in my room studying, you know. <laughs> I know. And 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 I and I think the group needs to know that not all of us were a wild, crazy man, uh, that, that Pete was one of the more serious cadets and he did quite it did quite well for him to be that way and he could fit in with us anyway yeah uh, so well after, i try not i try not to be judgmental you know <laughs> well, my, my, my dad raised me to be tolerant so what what happened after craig so uh after craig i went to b52 ccts at castle uh was an outstanding graduate there um <clears throat> then i got assigned to uh 379th bomb wing at wordsmith spent five years there uh, while I was sitting alert, I studied for the MCATs, applied to medical school, applied to 10 schools, and I got into seven. 
Um, and so I uh, went to medical school in 82, graduated from Uniform Services University in 86, did a transitional internship at Andrews Air Force Base in 86 and 87. And then, uh, uh, and while I was in med school, I did as an elective, I did the flight surgeon course. So as soon as I finished internship, I could put my flight surgeon wings on. Because I didn't require training as a flight surgeon, um, I called Andy Anderson, who was the SAC command surgeon, and I said, uh, sir, uh, I'd like an assignment back to the northern tier. And he goes, whoa, wait a minute. Could you please say that again? I said, <laughs> I'd like an assignment back to the northern tier where the weather is cold and there are no hurricanes. <laughs> and uh, he goes, okay, when are you available? <laughs> I said, one, one July. And oh, by the way, I finished the flight surgeon course. You don't have to send me to school. He goes, we have a number of openings. Do you have any base of preference? And I said, well, you know, I was assigned at Wordsmith and I own a house there because I didn't sell my house. So yeah. if you send me back there, that'll be easy. So on like 7 July, I reported back into Wordsmith Air Force Base as the uh, flight surgeon for the 379th uh, Medical Group. And where, where is Wordsmith? Oscoda Michigan is where I live now. Okay. I'm just still in one, that house. Just so I'm in the house. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the house that I bought in February of 1978. That's where I retired to. That's cool. So you never yeah. sold it. No, never sold it. Yeah. And then I, um, I believe in, I believe in long-term planning. The you know, I got up here and even though the winters were just a little colder than I was used to in DC, they weren't that much colder. And uh, the house I bought is right on the public beach on Lake Huron. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, I bought it from the original owners. It was built in 1945. Uh, it's got cove ceilings, uh, lath and plaster walls, um, arched doorways, glass uh, doorknobs. Um, you should come up and visit. You'd enjoy it. Um, I was and, just in uh, Detroit a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, we're four hours north of Detroit. But um, yeah. I can fly down to Detroit in an hour and 45 minutes and pick you up if I need to. So um, anyway, we got back there in 87 and I got moved back into my house and the house next door was for sale. And apparently it had been for sale for a year. It was a summer cottage. Uh, it was built in 1911. The town burned down in 1911 and the family that had lived on this lot that our house, my house and this other house are on, um, it, they uh, needed a place to live. So they ordered a house from the Montgomery Ward catalog. <laughs> and it was was shipped up here on a railroad car and then moved to the site by truck and assembled in town. Originally, it had no indoor plumbing. They had a latrine in back, you know, outhouse. And um, so uh, in 1933, it had a kitchen added on with a bathroom and plumbing because city water came in about then right before World War Two. And um, anyway, it had been for sale for um, a year and. Uh, I was due for my first physician bonus as a fully qualified uh, flight doc, and uh, that was about $23,000, and they were asking $27,000 for the house, so three-bedroom, one-bath, and um, I immediately saw the potential of owning the house next door to my own, and so I walked next door when they were there, and I said, I know the house has been for sale for a while. It needs some work. I know you want $27,000 for it, but I've got twenty-three cash with no inspection. Do you want it? And they said, yes. So we <laughs> bought that house and that house is now our guest house. That's so if cool. you come visit, you know, we put you over there, you can go buy your own food and live your own life and go to the beach and we can, you know, have dinner with you in the backyard, you know, it's fun. Yeah. Well, so, thank you. Uh, so, so I want to get back to the Pete story. Yeah, you got your flight surgeon. You got your wings. You've got you've got your yep. career going. So I'm here. I'm I'm here from 1987 to 1989 as the base flight surgeon. My first year, I'm chief of flight medicine. My second year, I'm chief of aeromedical services, which is the 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 director in the hospital for the all the flight surgeon activities. And then <clears throat> General Chain had four years earlier uh, moved to appoint me to be the SAC pilot physician. And General Chain found out four years later when he was still the sink sack that um, that appointment had been held up on a desk in the Pentagon um, and not approved. And he threw a tirade. 
<clears throat> so I got a call in um, late 1989, I think it was September or November, saying, uh, you are now approved as the SAC pilot physician. You will return to B-52 training to, uh, to requalify as a pilot in the B-52 in about two months. So when Desert Storm broke out, I was at Castle uh, requalifying the B-52, and I got back to Wurtsmith in March, I think March of, uh, or April, March, I guess, of uh, 90, and we were, you know, going to war. So, yes, uh, right, right before, so yeah, right before I was, that. I was back on a numbered crew. My billet went from being the chief of aeromedical services in the hospital to being the SME, the squadron medical element in the 524th bomb squad. And they had not had an SME prior to that, but they were entitled to one. And, um, but they, uh, they put me right on a numbered crew. I was on crew, uh, E21, uh, flight commander crew for, uh, Bravo flight. And, um, so, uh, cause my hours and everything, I was a highly experienced co-pilot. Um, and, uh, so I started to sit in alert and, uh, um, you know, we rotated in and out of jet anew. And, um, when we finally got done with the war, we, uh, uh, got back and the wall had fallen in 89 in Germany and so SAC uh, did two things that were anathema. The first thing they did in 1990 was they got rid of the gunners and they started uh, taking the guns out of the B-52s. And the second thing they did was they stood down Alpha Alert after uh, Desert Storm. So we pulled Alpha Alert all through Desert Storm uh, with a third of the wing gone at any one time. If you weren't at Jetta New, you then you were on every other week alert back at Wordsmith because a third of our planes were deployed and two thirds of them were back here, uh, you know, tied to the alert commitment. So that stood down. And then with the 92 BRAC, we found out Wordsmith was going to be closing. And so in the fall of 92, I was reassigned to the 416th bomb wing at uh, Griffiths Air Force Base in New York okay. and uh, moved there as the pilot, as a SAC pilot physician. And shortly thereafter, ACC uh, conquered SAC, and I became the first ACC pilot physician. And uh, when I got to uh, the 416th, a uh, year later, I was uh, put in for the McKay Trophy and for uh, Air Force Flight Surgeon of the Year. And so I received both of those awards in the same year, the McKay Trophy for Aeronautics and the uh, Air Force Flight Surgeon of the Year. Uh, my crew, E-21 at, uh, I kept being on E-21, E-21 at uh, Griffiths uh, got the McKay Trophy for recovering a badly disabled B-52. Uh, you can look it up and read the story if you want. It's easy to Google. And okay, then uh, cool. the Society of U.S. Air Force Flight Surgeons selected me as the Air Force Flight Surgeon of the Year that year. So uh, I got the, the highest award in aer aeronautics in the military and the... Uh, the highest recognition a flight surgeon can get uh, in the Air Force in the same year. That's, uh, um, that's impressive, Pete. Was it, has anybody else done that? Not that I'm aware of, no. I don't think anyone has ever gotten Flight Surgeon of the Year and the McKay Trophy in one year. That's that's awesome. So, yeah. uh, and, so then I, uh, I left Griffiths in 94 and uh, went to do a master's degree in public health at Uniformed Services University. I finished that in 95. That was actually the first year of my combined residency in aerospace and occupational medicine. I did the aerospace uh, residency in 95 and 96 at Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio. Then I did the occupational medicine residency in 96 and 97. And then I went from there to being the squadron commander of the first air medical squadron at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. I had uh, the largest air medical squadron in the Air Force under my command. And I uh, stayed there for 13 months uh, before leaving and moving to headquarters AATC. I left prior to 18 months because my group commander and I did not see eye to eye. His name was Scott Garner. And uh, the day that I reported into him, uh, he had his paper up and I walked into his office. He wouldn't put his paper down. I saluted and said, you know, Colonel Mapes reporting is ordered. And, you know, he didn't return my salute and kept his paper up in front of his face. Finally, he puts his paper down and goes, what in the hell are you doing here? And that was the start of a very interesting ride for 13 months. 
But wow. uh, I managed to uh, get get through it with my command insignia intact because I held command for over 12 months. And uh, and uh, that was a challenge because he was a very difficult person to work for. He was not friendly to rated people. So uh, he just didn't like pilots. He didn't like pilots. He didn't like anyone who was willing to disagree with him and tell him so. Yeah. So we've, we've all run into those guys. I tell you. We have. I've, I've run into two of them in my Air Force career. I had a, a medical group commander at Wordsmith who uh, was a surgeon who refused to practice surgery, but collected his board surgery, board certification pay and surgery every year, even though he refused to practice his specialty. And uh, he was addicted to nicotine and I couldn't get any Nicorette gum from my flyers to quit smoking because he, he would go to the pharmacy and get all of it every time it came in and distribute it to his buddies in command. So it wasn't available for the people who really needed it. He passed it out like candy to the uh, leadership who uh, wanted it. And, uh, you know, he was like, you know, anathema as a doctor. It's just he did everything you don't want to see a doctor do. So, uh, but, uh, and then between that guy and Scott Garner, those are the two bad commanders I ran into in my entire Air Force career. Um, his name was uh, Virgil Hemphill, the guy who uh, was passing out the Nicorette gum like candy. So what? So, what? What? After after these uh, the bad commander thing, you ended up in D.C. right? Yeah. So uh, I didn't get there immediately after uh, I left uh, Squadron Command at Langley, and I went back to uh, San Antonio, where I was on the headquarters AATC staff as the AATC, uh, AATC pilot physician. And in that position, I had responsibility for all of the syllabuses for the T-37, all of the syllabuses for the T-1, uh, all of the CRM program for the whole command, AATC, and I was responsible for dealing with the physiological problems we ran into implementing the T-6A as, a, as the primary trainer. Mm. So I had a very interesting three years there working full-time in command headquarters, working one day a week as a doc at the 12th medical group and flying one to two sorties a day on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, with the 559th uh, Flying Training Squadron uh, teaching instructor pilots how to fly the T-37. Um, so it was a very busy three years that was punctuated on the uh, 28th of June, 2001, when an unlicensed driver driving a uh, 1997 Ford Blazer um, ran through a stoplight light before sunrise one morning and T-boned me on 1604, driving into a brief assortie in the T-37. Uh, that, that mishap disabled both me and my wife uh, pretty severely. The medical care we got at Fort Sam Houston was abysmal. And as a result of the the sequelae of that accident, um, I didn't get to fly much more in the Air Force. I still maintain my, you know, my civil ratings and my civil medical and flew my own airplanes. Uh, but um, that pretty much, that accident pretty much ended my flying days. I got returned to flying status, but uh, had a lot of difficulty because of the traumatic brain injury and everything associated with that. Um, I actually was sent to England to fly the Hawk and got 22 hours in the Hawk, but was never uh, passed on to uh, be pilot in command of the Hawk. I didn't pass the, uh, the training program because I was still suffering from the traumatic brain injury from the uh, car accident. Oh, and uh, so I spent uh, 18 months in the European Office of Aerospace Research and Development, um, not doing a whole lot, just looking at uh, aeromedical research in Europe and trying to uh, you know, get what we could that was interesting to the United States Air Force. And then I got reassigned to the Air Force Research Lab in uh, 2003. And what did you stop for drinking water here? So yeah, I get to the Air Force Research Lab and find out that my boss doesn't really want a pilot physician in his command. My boss was a guy named Hendrik Ruck, who was a psychologist. He's a civilian. And he's a pretty good guy, actually, but he didn't know what a pilot physician was good for, and he couldn't see why he needed one, much less a full colonel. And uh, so at that point, a guy named Lex Brown, who's also a pilot physician, handed off a study 
that a civilian contractor had done on um, fighter mishaps. And the civilian contractor that did this work had not put any denominators in it. And it turns out that all of their conclusions were incorrect because of the lack of denominators. Now, remember at this point, I have a master's in public health and my area of specialty is biostats and epidemiology. So the <laughs> mathematical part of medicine is what I specialized in in my master's degree. And so the reason I was given the study to look at is because I had the expertise mathematically to look at what had been done and find out where the problems were. So I looked at the study and I said, well, we need the denominators. So I spent the next year from 2003 to 2004 getting the denominators. And in the process, um, I'd been an Air Force Academy liaison officer since 1980, and I still am one. Um, one of the kids that I trained to fly who had gone to the Air Force Academy from Oscoda um, back in uh, um, 90 or so um, had died in a uh, A-10 mishap out of Ileson up in Alaska. He died in February of 03. And uh, so I was really upset with the amount of controlled flight into terrain that was happening in fighter aircraft. And I still am, by the way. Yeah. Um, so I took that report that Lex Brown got me and I got the denominators and I came up with completely different conclusions than the civilian contractor had come up with. For instance, the civilian contractor said that our biggest problem with controlled flight into terrain is F-16s because the F-6 number, the absolute number of F-16s with controlled flight into terrain every year was the highest number in the Air Force. But we had at the time 2,300 F-16s. And even yeah. though we were only losing half as many A-10s every year, we only had 528 A-10s in the inventory at the time. So the, so the, rate, the, time. Yeah. the rate in A-10s was twice that of the F-16s. Yeah. So I wrote my own report based on the numerator data in the original report and the Air Force denominator data. Yeah. And that brought me to the attention of, and I also wrote a business case analysis for the automatic ground collision avoidance system. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's basically software that goes into the flight computer of a fighter. And when the pilot aims the airplane at the ground and has not recovered by the time a 5G recovery would be required to prevent collision with the ground, the uh, computer takes over and flies the airplane and the pilot away from the ground safely. Yeah. So I wrote the business case and that put new life into the program because she, uh, chief of staff air force had said it wasn't cost effective in 99 and secretary of the air force said the same thing in 2000. But in 2004, when I wrote my report, um, that got interest at the Pentagon. It also pissed off the air force. So I was, I was not supposed to leave uh, my assignment for four years. It was a controlled four-year tour at the lab. And a year early in 2006, I got orders to be the chief of aerospace medicine at Nellis. And that would, of course, had taken me away from the Pentagon and the ability to lobby for safety and the automatic ground collision avoidance system. And get you over so, and get you out of the way, yeah. Yeah. So um, I asked the guy from the colonel's group, I said, so um, you have, of course, discussed this assignment with the pilot physician career field chief, right, uh, Colonel Brown, because AFI 11405 says that pilot physician personnel management has to be done through the program chief, and all pilot physician assignments have to be coordinated through that person. And the guy at the colonel's group said, no, we don't have to do that. We're the colonel's group. And so then I, I uttered the magic words. So I, I said, so I understand I either have to seven-day opt or take the assignment and that I have no more administrative rem remedies for this uh, this issue. Is that correct? That's a quote out of the IG reg, just so you're yeah. aware. Yeah. Um, and the guy said, that's right. So I wrote a one-paragraph IG complaint. I got up from my desk. I walked down to the headquarters AFMC IG. I knocked on the door, handed my complaint to the colonel, uh, and walked out. Uh, five days later, my assignment to Nellis was canceled. <laughs> the uh, brigadier general in charge of the colonel's group was fired. Wow. And a message went out to the entire Air Force saying 
that all pilot physician assignments will be coordinated in accordance with AFI 11-405, which, oh, by the way, Tom Travis and I had written in 1984 while we were in medical school. Wow. So they got to wake up. I mean, that, that's what you that's what you're talking about earlier in the conversation. That right. You're going to be faced right. with uh, people doing things for weird reasons and you just got to do the right thing and persevere and put up with all the crap. And, and if you stick to your guns and you and you have the data and the science behind you, it's going to be fine. Yep. So um, I had been going to a number of safety meetings and advocating for the automatic ground collision avoidance system. And I was invited to go to a meeting of the Defense Safety Oversight Council in Destin, Florida in 2006 in the summer. And a guy named Joe Angelo, who was the executive director of the DSOC, sorry, executive secretary of the DSOC, um, the DEPSECDEF was the um, chairman of the DSOC, and the SECDEF would sometimes chair the meetings. And all of the chiefs of staff or their vices alternated as members of the DSOC. Um, so at the DSOC working group in Destin, uh, he got up there and he said, you know, he kind of railed at everyone. He goes, we can't make any changes unless you give us business cases. You have to show the value in dollars of whatever safety stuff you're proposing. And I go, well, shit, I'm holding the business case for AutoGCast in my hand in a binder. So he yeah. does the he does the SES thing and starts walking out of the meeting after he delivers his talk. So I get up in front of him and walk out in front of him and I hold the door doors for him. And after we're out in the anyway, I turn around, and I go, Mr. Angelo, this is the business case for the automatic ground collision avoidance system. You said you were serious about business cases. Here it is. This proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that for every dollar you spend on auto GCAS, you will preserve $65 in airframes. That's oh, wow. a 65 to one ratio. That's a better business case than anything in the history of the DOD. Yep. All right. He said, this is very interesting. He took it, walked <laughs> off. I figure, well, I'm done here. I won't hear anything more. <laughs> Three weeks later, I have two functional functionals from the DSOC sitting in my office at Wright Patterson up in the, up in the head shed. And they're reviewing the business case with me and they can't find any holes in it. And uh, so they tell me they arrange orders for me to come to DC. And pretty soon I am on the road with the air force chief of safety. Um, uh, let's see, what was his name? McFan, uh, general McFan. And we are starting to make the rounds with the business case all the way up to the secretary of the Air Force, going through all the general offices. And McFan plays it really coy. He sits down and he, a, whatever general we're talking to at the time, three or four star, McFan's a two star at this point. He'd say, well, you know, we know we don't want, you know, automation taking control of our fighters, but this business case is really irrefutable. And if we don't do something, if we don't take the initiative, then OSD is going to take the initiative for us and we won't have a choice. So we really need to, you know, get on board with this software. And that was the tact he took. It was kind of a good, good guy, bad guy thing. You know, he, he would sympathize with the generals that they didn't want the automation, but then he would say the business case is so ironclad that we're going to get the automation, whether we want it or not. The only question is, do we want to control it? Yeah. You know, or do we want it thrust upon us? And I watched this go on all the way up to the through through the chief of staff of the Air Force. And I got I was and I'm the briefer. Right. I'm briefing my business case. And so I briefed secretary of the Air Force. And uh, and remember, this is just five years after six years after secretary of the Air Force has said that uh, it's not cost effective. Right. So. Uh, I'm drinking water. So uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, I go back, I, this is multiple trips to DC to do all this and we're making headway and, um, we're still not, I go in, uh, 05, I went to for, fighter crosstalk at Fort Worth and I basically got booed out of the room by the engineers. They go, we're never accepting automation into our software. We're never <laughs> going to put auto GCAS on any fighter. This is 2005 and, uh, it's just not going to happen. So in 2006, we get our break because the guard pilots are aware that F-16s are called lawn darts because of their CFIT rate. Yep. 
and the the um, National Guard guys have families and they're airline pilots and they're more settled, more mature. And so they go public and say, we need auto GCAS in our F-16s, yep. period. And if you don't put it in, and if you don't put it in, we're not going to fly them. Yeah, they, they, and the commercial pilots, especially the reserve guys, they've seen this TCAS. TCAS yeah. is the thing I've that I used to work on with uh, right. Yeah, and that that worked like a champ. So they go, yeah, yeah we need, and that wasn't even automated. Stuff. So I'm getting I'm getting to that, but but so they put up this stink, and the the uh, Air National Guard puts out a firm position supporting auto GCAS. Well, that breaks the hole in the fighter mafia. Now they're no longer a solid, you know, wall against auto GCAS. There's a chink in the wall and it's a significant chink. Um, so the F-16 gets programmed for auto GCAS, but they don't put it in the F-35 or the F-22. Mm. And the F-22 still doesn't have it. The F-35 does have it now. Um, but the F-22 still doesn't. And we're still losing F-22s to see fit. Um, so, uh, and it's 200 million a copy every time we do. By the way, you can put auto GCAS into the entire F-22 fleet for under, for $80 million. And every yeah, time, well, we lose, every time we lose an F-22 to see fit, it's a $200 million loss. And for 40% of one airplane, you can save them all. Yeah. So anyway, um, so uh, the next thing that happens is I'm smarting after this IG complaint and this uh, missing this assignment to Nellis. And I get a chance to talk to Mr. Angelo. And I said, look, Mr. Angelo, I'm going to retire from the Air Force in 2010. And personally, I think I can do the most good if you assign me to the DSOC at OSD, because then I will be here. I can not only push auto GCAS, but there are a host of other safety things that we need to do uh, studies on and do business cases on. And yeah, so he hired me and I went to OSD as the pilot physician for the Defense Safety Oversight Council in OSD. And I spent uh, until 2010 working active duty. I retired on the 31st of March, 2010 after uh, 38, 37 years, 10 months, 21 days active duty. <laughs> and Who's uh, counting, right? Yeah, exactly. And I was hired back on the 6th of June as a civilian to the yeah. same office. Um, now, unfortunately, um, President Obama only filled the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness position for half of his two terms, and he filled it with a bunch of uh, poor leaders. We had uh, Major General Clifford Stanley, who hated meetings. We had uh, Miss Erin Connaughton, who turned out to be a cocaine addict and had to depart because she had to go into rehab. Uh, we had uh, uh, Jessica Wright, who was Major General uh, from the uh, uh, Army Guard in Pennsylvania. And uh, she was the best of the lot, but she didn't question her people. And uh, so a guy named Lieutenant General Linnington from the Army came in and conspired with um, a number of other people. Uh, let's see, Laura Juner, um, John okay. Conger, uh, Jessica Wright. And they managed to shut down the DSOC. Mm. And that happened in 2014. They got rid of Mr. Angelo. Um, they shut down the DSOC. And I moved to the Defense Health Agency. And I stayed there for one year of the Trump administration. And after I saw that Trump was going to be worse than Obama, <laughs> I left. Because uh, Obama, yeah. uh, Obama only filled um, half his appointments uh, half the time. Uh, Trump, um, Trump filled 20% of his appointments. Yeah. And I and think, I think the message to the, to the people listening to this is it's not, it's not, uh, abnormal to see the political will get really screwy, screwy when you get to, uh, the higher levels. Just because anyway, doesn't mean they get the, they know what they're doing half the time. By the summer of 2017, I was convinced that I wasn't going to do any more good for the U.S. government in a civilian position. So I retired in the fall of 2017 and uh, came back here to Michigan, started rehabbing my house. 
uh, that I had bought back in 1978 in February. And uh, Nona and I came back here. And uh, in um, 2018, in August, we went on a 90-day trip to Australia and New Zealand, which was not a tour. We just, we just got on an airplane, went, rented cars, and hiked, and spent 90 yeah. days in Australia and New Zealand. Had a wonderful time. Came back, got the house finished to live in. And then, and, and then you got going with the, the, the aviation maintenance program you, sh you shared with me. Yeah, in 2019, we started that. But also, I was appointed as a commissioner for military aviation safety on the National Commission for Military Aviation Safety. And uh, that's a story I won't relate here, uh, but uh, because that's still unfolding. And yeah. there's a bunch of stuff that we'll talk about later. But we can't talk about it until it's finished unfolding. So uh, there you go. So I did that work for the government, and yeah. uh, I'm still 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 involved in that to some degree, uh, because until the NDAA gets written this year, we won't see the final fruits of uh, what's getting produced from that commission. So I think uh, the message I want the crowd to understand is, fifty years after showing up at Air Force, this guy's still got a ton of energy and a ton of enthusiasm. He's still doing a lot of great things. Yeah, and I'm still not I'm still not running naked through the quadrangle or uh, <laughs> or uh, spending my time down at bars on weekends. <laughs> well, bars on weekends, I don't I don't remember having the money for that, but I do remember trying to blow off some steam by doing some of the other crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you doing that too. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, in hindsight, um, you know, you need to get as much training in as many things as you can. Uh, mathematics is always your friend. Never refuse to take a math course that when one's offered that you think you can master. Um, English is really important. You have to be able to communicate clearly. Both you have to be able to write and speak. Uh, that's absolutely essential. Um, and uh, then you need a passion for doing the right thing. And I saw, for instance, you know, one flight surgeon get promoted to brigadier general largely because he would prescribe whatever drug the other generals wanted, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, those same generals would come to me and I would go, no, you don't need 5,000 Motrin, you know, <laughs> that's, that's absurd. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be taking that much Motrin. You're going to blow out your uh, kidneys and uh, that's not good medicine. And they go, well, doc so-and-so, you know, gave me that. I go, that's between you and doc so-and-so. So, you know, I, I tried to treat every patient, whether they were an airman or a general, exactly the same and with respect and with kindness and to practice good medicine uh, and, you know, their personal needs I would take into account, but I would not compromise the principles of medicine uh, to provide service to them. And uh, that, that, that attitude resulted in some disfavor from some generals but it always got appreciation from the spouses and the enlisted folks and the lower ranking officers because they knew that they were getting treated just like a four star when they walked into my office. Yeah. Not and, a, 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 that's a great way to go. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, get all the training you can get, follow your passion, do the right thing, uh, maintain your sense of honor uh, you know, we don't lie, cheat or steal nor tolerate among us those who do. And, uh, you know, temper that with compa compassion. Everybody makes mistakes and it's possible to rehabilitate, you know, most people uh, to, some degree or another, to some degree or another. Uh, yeah. But not always. There are some people you just have to cut loose. Yep. And uh, you have to recognize when you have to do that. Uh, certainly, if a person's hurting the mission, uh, they need to go elsewhere. You know, um, but uh, you need to make sure that your contributions to the mission are always positive and uh, always uh, fall on the side of safety. And you'll have a great life and a great career. And like I say, in, in my 38 years uh, in the Air Force, I only had two bad commanders. I had one for one year and one for two years. So three years of bad commanders out of 38 years. That's pretty good. I, I know a lot of people from the Navy and the Army who have a lot higher percentage of bad commanders than I had. Um, yeah, I had some characters in my five years of active duty. I had characters in three of the five years. So, yeah. 
So you had sixty percent. When I say characters, I don't mean I don't mean great commanders. I mean lunatic fringe. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you had sixty percent lunatic fringe in the air in the uh, navy. You had about eight percent, right? <laughs> eight eight percent in the air force. Yeah. yeah. And the lunatic fringe that I had, I mean, one guy was just plain mean, and the other guy was just plain selfish. Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, yeah. Um, so just do your best, you know, and, and accept, take the cards where they lie. And the other thing is don't give up. Nothing was ever accomplished by a person who wasn't stubborn. Yep. If you want to amount to anything in life, you have got to be stubborn. You have got to be the cocklebore under the saddle that will not go away. You know, you have <laughs> got, I got to give you credit, Pete. You're very good at that. <laughs> you've got to be that you've got to be the foot fungus that you cannot get rid of. You've got to make it so painful for the people who don't want to change that they would rather change than have to deal with you anymore. And, and that's, and, that's the way you get stuff done. There, you know? There's also, there's also kindness and friendly friendship and positivity in there. Oh yeah, he, absolutely. All that too. Likes, he really likes being a foot fungus. I got to give him credit for that. But you, but you, you can't, when you know you're right, you cannot give in. No, that's right. And because uh, if you give in, you've lost the battle right there. Well, plus you can't sleep with yourself at night. It, right. It, it gnaws at you too much. You can't. Yeah. Uh, it just, it, it's not good for your own, your own health. <laughs> right. Right. And that was the good thing about my career. Every night when I went to bed, except for about three nights, I would fall right to sleep. I can, right. I can count about three sleepless nights in my whole career. That's you right. Know? And